Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to the Sandbox Story, which is an interview with Dr. Andrea Thaw. Welcome to Sandbox Stories, Dr. Thaw. Thank you for having me, Scott. Uh, thanks for being here. We've been friends for a long time, and I can't wait to get into this a bit with you. There have been a lot of topics that we're going to cover because of how much you've devoted your career to optometry, but we have to talk about a couple of unique matters first. You were a competitive swimmer in high school and college and then trained as a lifeguard. Tell us about your career in the pool. So I started swimming as a young child and actually just recently came across some of my uh, papers from camp where they thought maybe one day I'd be in the Olympics. But I attended the Bronx High School of Science, which never had a women's swim team. I was actually in the very first women's swim team that was ever created there. And we didn't have a pool. So we had to actually go to a all boys high school, which was down a very long block and swim there very early in the morning and then change right by the pool and walk back sopping wet in the wintertime. And by the time I got to my English class, my hair was frozen in icicles and I had to blow dry my hair, which I normally didn't do just to get rid of them. But it was a really great experience swimming competitively in high school. And then when I got to college, I also continued. Uh, but then after I, uh, I came home from um, my first year at college and I looked like totally big and ripped. <laughs> and my mom had said to me, maybe less swimming and more ballet, which was my other love. So that's how that kind of ended my swim career. Um, but I love to swim and my whole family swim. So we really enjoy it. And you still do ballet. I still do ballet. I've been doing ballet since I'm a young child. Uh, you know, they say that there's four spheres in your life that you need to have in balance, your physical, your emotional, your spiritual, and your intellectual. And believe it or not, I tap into all four when I'm in ballet class. Um, it has, mm -hmm. I have a whole set of friends that um, I take class with that are a new sphere of people I would never have met. We have live pianists, we have live music. You have to remember the combinations. You're expressing yourself. And I, I just so love it. And in fact, if I can't take class for some time, if I'm traveling for AOA or doing other things, my office staff will say, have you been taking class lately? Because they can tell when I haven't been taking class. So it's something I really love to do. Unfortunately, now because of the pandemic, um, they didn't have in-person classes. So I was actually doing virtual classes, but still dancing. Okay. And actually, that's well, how I met my husband, believe it or not. Tell me more. I was his ballet instructor in college, um, and that's how we met. Uh, he was a competitive tennis player and hurt his ankle, uh, had broken his ankle and needed rehab, and they didn't have sports medicine in those days. So they suggested that he take dance classes, and uh, he checked out the ballet class and saw all these nice, beautiful women in the class and no guys. So he decided pretty good place for me. And, uh, and as fate would have it, I was in a performing <laughs> dance troupe and I had broken my foot so I couldn't continue in my advanced class. So my teacher offered me to help teach the beginner class. They thought I'd be a good teacher and thought it would be good rehab. And he was in the class and he told me he wanted to be a professional dancer. So um, I paid him more attention and the rest is history. Oh, that's awesome. One other thing. How did you attain a credit in the movie Naked Gun? 
So my first cousin, Robert K. Weiss, is a very well-known movie producer. And um, if you read the credits for his movies, and his movies are funny, you know, he did Blues Brothers, All the Naked Guns, Dr. Detroit, Scary Movie 3 and 4. He has a whole legacy of films. And mm. the credits are often funny. They often have jokes in them. Um, and he put in a credit for me. My credit in The Naked Gun is that I did his wardrobe. And actually, he does appear in the film. So there's a whole discussion on IMDb about whether or not I really did his wardrobe or not. And he actually gave a credit to my one of my brothers in the second movie and my other brother in the third film. But we have a competition in our family about credits uh, because all of us have been in the media one way or the other. My eldest son was on 60 Minutes. My husband was on The Daily Show several times when it was Jon Stewart, and, and he's done a lot of media for his profession. Uh, but now the star of the show with the credits are my, is my son, Richard, who is now a union member and a prop master working on major films and TV shows. Uh, that's a great competition. All right. Well, on to your optometry career. You've built a tremendous practice in New York City, and along the way, you've tirelessly volunteered at both the state and national level. And you ultimately became president of the American Optometric Association. Give us some insights about what that path to becoming an AOA president was like. So it was a very long journey, Scott, and it wasn't really something that I had my heart set on. It wasn't like I got out of optometry school and said my goal was to be AOA president. My goal was to help give back to the profession because I was very aware because my dad was an OD and I watched the transformation of our profession that was created by my dad and all of his colleagues that brought the profession to the level that I inherited that. And I understood that I needed to pay it forward. The way I say, would say thank you to them is by doing good and trying to advance the profession for the generations that came after me. So I literally showed up at a local society meeting right after I graduated because my dad used to bring me to meetings and uh, they asked me to run for the board and I got on our local society and our local society is actually bigger than some state associations. And I actually served right. there, I think it was eight or nine years to become the first woman president of our local society. And then while I was climbing the ranks and still an officer on the local society level, I was tapped to have a position on our state, a New York State Optometric Association, on an appointed VP position. It was kind of a grooming position. And oh. every time the door opened, I just said yes, and I stepped through. So I actually wound up being uh, an officer on the state association at the same time I was still an officer on the local society. Um, and NYSOA in those days had two-year terms. So that was actually a 14-year commitment uh, to, wow. to rise up through the ranks. And then when I finished that commitment, uh, the door opened, the stars sort of aligned, and I could see that, wow, maybe, you know, AOA is the next step to move forward, that I really believe that each and every one of us is put on this planet to make the world a better place. And it's our obligation to use our given gifts to do that and to make the world a better place. And I felt that I had been given certain gifts and groomed and trained in certain ways that there were things that I could do to give to pay it back to the profession by taking it to the highest level. And frankly, it was a huge journey. It, not easy to get elected to the AOA board. Uh, I ran. I didn't have a campaign manager. I, I was kind of naive about the process. I had been to many, many meetings and, and many, many optometry meetings. But the good news is I really had friends um, all across the country who I had met based on all of the volunteer efforts I had done for AOA and working with my state association. And all of them were encouraging me. And it was a contested election. There were a lot of people running for two seats, and I actually won. It was very exciting. And it was all smooth sailing from there in terms of elections. 
but I actually served for a full 11 years on the AOA board and then actually came back for a 12th year because somebody stepped off the board. So that's kind of unusual. The maximum you can normally serve is 11 years. So it was a, a very long journey where you get trained in a many, many different ways and you interact with lots of people and you learn a lot. It was an incredible, incredible experience, but a lot of work, a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of travel, a lot of dedication. I always tell people that if you want to do it, you truly have to be a little bit crazy. You have to be crazy in love with the profession because you are literally traveling at warp speed, trying to balance you know, your practice, your family, your personal life with AOA. And it's a 24-7, 365 commitment. And, um, but it's, it's incredible. The friendships that you make, the people you meet, the impact that you can have on the profession, it, it's, it's really second to none. We're going to come back to your AOA stories in a little bit, but I'd like to talk about your mentoring experience. I mean, you say maybe thousands of young people have gone through your practice or you've been mentored to them in some way, and many of them have ended up choosing optometry and then have also gotten into optometry and become leaders. What does that mean to you? You know, I, I love students. I love young people. Um, I remember what a difference it made to me. Uh, to be mentored and to be helped by others. And, you know, whether it was teaching in my ballet class or as, as a kid growing up or being an assistant, I always loved to teach and I actually wound up becoming a professor. So anytime I had an opportunity to share with somebody about how wonderful optometry is, how great a profession it is, um, I just took, I just seized that. So SUNY, my alma mater and where I was, I taught for many years, often would send people over to come and shadow and pre-pandemic, they would come in and spend the day and um, I would first have them come to the clinic at the college so I could sort of separate for the men from the boys because some people would just come for the day just to check the box that they had visited. But the people who were really interested and engaged, I would then invite them to come to my practice. And in fact, one of them um, just graduated from optometry school right now, just the last week. Um, she came and she visited and um, oftentimes they would work in my practice also if they took a gap year between uh, undergraduate and optometry school, or if they were going to school locally where they could come and work. Um, and there are many of them who became officers of AOSA or local society leaders or student leaders. Uh, and as you mentioned, several of them, even right now, who are presidents of their state association, who I either mentored or mentored when I taught them as students in optometry school itself. It's, it's a really incredible experience to be able to to get to know these young people and to be able to shape them. And, you know, in terms of leadership, not everybody realizes that they have that gift to be a leader. And sometimes they need that tap on the shoulder or that little push to say, you need to lead. And in fact, um, that's happened with several people. In fact, someone just asked me to write a letter of recommendation for them, and they were recounting the story when I told them that they needed to leave, <laughs> and that now they're a local society officer. So, uh, and that the current president of the California Optometric Association, Dr. Ida Chung, a dear friend of mine, um, recounts the story of when I pulled her aside at SUNY and I said, it's time, you need to give back, you need to lead, you've got the gift, and, and now she's doing it. That's awesome. Now, you had mentorship in your family. Your dad was an OD. Um, how many siblings do you have or have you had? And and was he the only mentor to get you to, into optometry or were there others? So he was my initial mentor into optometry. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. He was the only person I knew that loved his work, loved his work. 
He used to joke around that when he retired, he'd only work half a day, which would be 12 hours. For him, it was truly a labor of love. And I shared with him a love for science, a love for math, uh, and just liking to help people. And, and the stories that he would tell and the relationships that he built with the patients was really, really incredible. And I spent a lot of time in his office. I used to volunteer and help him um, and shadow him when I could. And actually, when I came to choose optometry as a profession, he, he and my mom actually at one point actively tried to stop me from going into optometry because I was very close to my dad. And they were concerned that I was choosing it just because I was close to him. They wanted to make sure that, indeed, it was really what I wanted for myself. And um, and you know me well, Scott. You know, you can try to push me, but if I want something, I'm going for it. So it really, it really just – I redoubled my efforts. And then at that point, my dad – started bringing me to society meetings and uh, to meet his other colleagues. And I was really welcomed with open arms uh, into the meetings as a student and even as a young doctor. Uh, they were all very paternal to me. I was the only woman with the only one or two other exceptions. And I was by far the youngest at a lot of the meetings, but I was really, really welcomed into the field. And then along the way, I had many, many people who mentored me in terms of leadership roles, past presidents of the New York State Optometric Association, as I mentioned, many of them who tapped me on the shoulder and encouraged me to get involved in the state association and who mentored me along the way. Um, I had AOA board members who mentored me before I um, got onto the AOA board, encouraging me to run, mentoring me once I got on there. Uh, people like Dr. Norman Hafner, who was one of my mentors who really helped me prepare before I attended meetings to know, uh, even when I was a volunteer, what the whole backstory was and what I needed to do to be a good leader and to be a volunteer. So they were really a host of people who really helped me along the way, uh, many of whom are still very, very dear friends. You also asked about my brothers. Um, I have two younger yeah. brothers, neither of whom went into optometry. Uh, one of my brothers is a rabbi and a teacher, and my younger brother is a physician. He's a pulmonary and intensive care specialist. Well, you really care about your family deeply, and I love that part of your nuclear family. Now, your own family, you've already given us a, a, a headline summary, but let's just dig in a little bit more on your husband and your sons and what they're like and what they do, because I know you just have this immense uh, love and appreciation for them, and uh, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about each of them. So I'm really lucky. My husband and I, I mean, to brag, I can't help it, um, have two Please. spectacular sons, uh, you know, I think almost everybody loves their children, but I can't say that everybody really likes their children, and I really like my kids. Uh, in fact, a lot of my friends are friends with my kids because there's, there's a lot that they have in common. Uh, we're a fiercely competitive family. We, we love to read. We love to learn. Uh, we always want to be the best at what we can be, and I think that's one of the reasons all four of us went into different disciplines because we needed to be able to not necessarily compete with each other but excel as best we could in whatever field that we were doing. Uh, my husband is an accountant. He's the most atypical accountant that you'll ever meet. He's gregarious. He's funny. Uh, he also runs New York City MedTech, which is a uh, group that brings together all different medical technologies. As I mentioned before, he's done a lot of spokesperson work for his profession uh, on the AICPA. And he is exceptionally creative. He basically works with incredibly talented people in lots of areas and helps them be very financially successful. So he really look, thinks outside the box, outstanding problem solver, very dedicated husband who really committed a lot and dedicated and sacrificed a lot for all of the years of service that I gave. Uh, my eldest son, Evan, um, who... You know, it always broke my heart that he didn't go into optometry, but I'm so proud of him. He's completing his residency now in radiology, 
and he's going to be starting his fellowship in neuroradiology at the University of Pennsylvania. And it's interesting because I always love neuro, so that I see that in him. Um, and he has been my partner. I wear actually uh, on healthcare proxy for both my mom and my aunt, and he's been my partner side by side as we've been managing those very complicated medical cases. Uh, a great, great guy and um, incredibly smart and uh, a good person. And my younger son, also a great person, the best problem solver I've ever met uh, from the time he was a little boy. Um, I have lots of stories I could tell you and give you examples of that, but we'd be here for another hour. Uh, and he um, studied art in, uh, and, and graduated summa cum laude from his college, brilliant guy, and was trying to figure out a way that he could use his problem-solving skills. He is a great businessman. He always makes money. Money comes to this child. Even when he was young, he'd go into a store and come out with money. I never quite understood how that happened, but people would give him money. He'd find money in the telephone, you know, in the change thing. He just, he makes money. So he, he figured out that if he went into the TV and film business and became a prop master, he could use his creativity. Basically, they read a script and they decide... What needs to be there? What does the actor engage with? Everything they touch, so everything you see them handling, phones, cars, guns, candlesticks, any kind of device, telephones, he's got to find it, create it, put it in place. Uh, and he actually has his fil his name and credits now on several of the major series that are that are playing. So I know I've, I may have shared some of those credit screenshots of his name and, and credits, but this is the beginning of his career. And uh, my eldest son is uh, actually has his own apartment in our apartment building. And my younger son is purchasing his own right now. He's in contract, crossing fingers that it all goes well. So I'm building my own family compound in an apartment right, building here right, in Manhattan. Right in your own. Yep. You've got your nest just to, you know, it's got a few uh, divisions to it. That's great. Well, let's go back to your optometry roots. At SUNY, you said you dressed like a doctor from day one. Why? So I understood that to become a doctor, you had to be able to carry yourself a certain way. And as a young female in an era where there were very few women uh, going into optometry school, and I looked much younger than my age back in those days, I felt that I needed to practice for years. How am I going to carry myself? How am I going to dress myself? How can I walk in and command that space so that they know I'm a doctor? Because in those days, uh -huh. they assumed you were a nurse or the secretary or a receptionist. They never assumed you were the doctor. So I, I took my my role seriously. And I dressed every day for clinic. Uh, and I think it's one of the ways, frankly, that when I graduated from optometry school that I was offered a full-time faculty position straight out of school. I think the faculty saw me as a doctor. I did well academically and obviously did well clinically, but I think they could see me as a doctor and not just as a student. And, you know, you only get a, one chance to make a first impression. And so I felt that it was important from day one. And when you look at optometry students today, they reflect more like you, right? Uh, 50 or more percent are females. Um, is that something that makes you proud even though you didn't have a direct influence on it? I think it's a great statement for the profession to be like that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I, I think optometry is a great field for everyone. And I think uh, women tend to be very good communicators and very empathic and um, have can do a great job just as men can do a great job. So I'm really exciting, excited to see those changes. You know, when I was in the field, I didn't want to be recognized as a woman OD. I just wanted to be recognized as a great OD. And that's kind of the role model I tried to play for the other women. It's not about being a token or just being something separate and apart. It's by being part of the optometry family and being the best optometrist that you can be. And it, the door should be open for everyone. Yeah. And, and, 
you certainly in every room I've ever been in have been um, the kind of person who leads everybody and anybody. And uh, that's a statement to your character. Your practice was started by your father. His name was uh, Edwin Seathaw. And you have patients who have literally traveled from all corners of the globe to see you. Tell us about your patient base. Sure. Well, my dad was a diehard a private professionally practicing optometrist who charged for eye exams in the late 50s in a time when our colleagues were not doing that. I actually have his paper charts showing that he charged. Um, you know, back in the days where optometrists couldn't be reimbursed by insurance. And my dad always dressed properly. That was also part of how I got it. He felt that wherever he went, he needed to represent optometry well, and he needed to look like a doctor. Um, and actually, um, he had a private practice. He also was on staff of a hospital. Uh, in fact, he unfortunately passed away at a relatively young age, but his colleague who got appointed at the same time was recognized years later by that hospital as the longest serving uh, medical staff member at that hospital. So my dad was very trailblazing. He also was on the staff of a nursing home, and he also practiced all scopes of optometry, uh, medical stuff, vision therapy. He was a contact lens specialist. He fit keratoconics. He was a low vision specialist. He did it all. Um, at the end of his career, uh, there were certain shifts that were going on in his practice. And so uh, he passed away very abruptly, unexpectedly on vacation. And at that time, I was actually a full-time faculty member at SUNY, seeing private patients myself at SUNY. And um, and his private practice, he was subletting space at that time from someone else because he also was uh, had been on the staff of an HMO. He had several positions. So I actually initially started to see his private patients through the practice plan at the college. And after about two years, um, actually not even two years, it probably was about six months, it became clear to me that it wasn't going to work at, at the clinic. So I moved out and rented space from another OD for four years. And then after that, I opened my own space, which is where I've been ever since. Um, and we've actually just had, God, 30 years at that same location. Uh, and after five years of being there, I brought in my first uh, associate OD, and now there's four of us that are in the practice. So that's how it grew. I didn't really have my dad's physical space to move into. I had to build it. But when he passed away, I knew how much he loved his patients and how important it was. And what was really kind of eerie in hindsight is the night before he left on vacation, he came to say goodbye and he brought me his paper appointment book. And he said to me, hmm. I want you to cover for me while I'm gone. And he handed me that paper appointment book, which I still have to this day. And so I felt it was really my duty to care for those patients. And um, we sent out a letter after he passed away and explained that my dad had passed away. And although many of them had never met me, they had often heard about me because my dad, who was very humble, often bragged about his children because he was very proud of them, <laughs> as I am about my kids. And um, and so many of them continued. And uh it's really been incredible. I literally have someone I'll have to look up in his chart. Um, I think he's probably close to 70 now. And I think he came to see my dad when he was four. And so he's been a patient of the practice all the way through for 66 years. I have uh, people who are my age who've been seen all the way through multiple generations of families and patients who, because of the relationship that we have with them, because of the trust that we have in them, because we look at them as an entire person, really maintain that relationship and come to see us, even though they now may live in Japan or Spain or Africa or Italy. Uh, it's incredible. They still come and, it, and we go out of our way to try to accommodate them when they're in New York, but it means so much to us to have those relationships. It's one of the beautiful things about optometry. 
and it's great for your associates to be along on that ride as you look forward, I'm sure, to them, you know, taking care of them, these patients for another 60 years. Yeah, I'm not ready to retire so, just yet. <laughs> and I know you're not going to retire for 60 years. But, um, it's, but I really consider chance, my practice might... my baby. You know, it's my baby, and I and I love it, and I want to nurture it, and you know, I hope I'm blessed to be able to continue to care for patients for many years to come. But I hope, it, yes, Scott, that it continues even after, even after I'm gone. <laughs> Along the way of your representing optometry, you got involved with the American Public Health Association, APHA is the acronym. And I suspect most optometrists don't really know what APHA does and how important it is to have eye care professionals involved in public health. So speak a little bit to the role you served with APHA and then the pride you have in some vision policies you've helped successfully move through APHA. You know, before the pandemic, most optometrists probably didn't realize that they were public health officers, that that was part of an important role that they play. Now with, with the pandemic, we all understand that, how we educated our patients about using masks and, and staying safe and preventing the transmission of disease. But but eye health is an important part of public health. And uh, when I was on my first AOA committee, which was the Faculty Relations Committee, uh, Dr. the late Dr. Mort Silverman was really impressed upon me the importance of public health and being involved in APHA as an optometrist, as did Dr. Norman Hafner. And so I became a member in APHA. And then when I finished my term on the AOA board and I had a little bit more free time, uh, I decided to get more involved and I ran and become a, became a section counselor and became section ch uh, policy chair so that we could start to work on actually impacting policies that the APHA could pass that would positively impact our patients. And I'm really proud because in 2019, for the first time in nearly a decade, in nine years, we actually passed a vision policy, which was based on the NASM report, the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and, Math and Medicine. And that policy uh, was to promote eye health. And I'll just read a little bit, a little Please. high level, and later on we can share the snippet so you can see the full 10-page document. This is a very difficult process. It takes a whole group of people to write it. You have to edit it. It has to be approved by different levels of the APHA policy. They have a joint policy committee. And then it has to be voted on and approved by the entire APHA community. So in 2019, uh, we passed the 2019 number one, promoting eye health, noting the importance of eye health to children, adults, and older people. It calls on the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to issue a call to action on reducing the burden of vision impairment and partner with fellow agencies and community organizations to launch a coordinated public awareness campaign on vision health across the lifespan. It encourages the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to build on and develop the vision and eye health surveillance system and include questions about eye health in major health surveys. It urges state and local public health agencies to partner with healthcare systems to promote objectives and strategies on optimal eye health. And then last year, in the midst of the pandemic in 2020, we passed a policy, which I did along with Bubba Steele. Uh, Scott and I worked with Bubba on infancy. It's one of my dreams, and my, one of my father's dreams was to be able to pass public health policy on children's vision. So policy 2022 is increasing access and reducing barriers to children's vision care services with clear healthy vision critical to a child's educational, social, and extracurricular success. It calls on federal agencies conducting surveys on children's health and education to also collect data 
on access to and use of eye care. It asks the U.S. Health Resources and Services Administration to allocate new resources to improve access to vision care for all children and increase support to state health departments to address the issue through existing programs. It urges public and private insurance programs to maintain comprehensive vision care for children from birth to age 18. It calls on school officials to guarantee that children with vision problems who need extra help receive the necessary accommodations for school success. So this was a major win on a much, much larger public health platform that then other groups like the American Optometric Association um, can use to try to actually change and promote um, changes in policy on both the state and the federal level. Now, does APHA's policies, do their, do their policies have an impact on just state agencies or can they have an impact on, I heard in their community organizations, are, are there ways for them or the message to be carried to organizations that have otherwise maybe been able to send out messaging or to influence the community in a positive way and, 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 and have it sort of be a valid way of them presenting information to the community? Yes, that's exactly the idea. The idea is that once this policy has been shared and it's out there in the public, that other organizations and groups can use it to empower themselves to understand about the direction that they should take and give themselves support for these actions. You know, one of the huge wins um, during the Affordable Care Act in 2011 that the AOA won was that Comprehensive eye examinations for children birth through 18 is one of the 10 essential benefits. And AOA fought hard to be able to win that. And this is now embedding that language within APHA policy so that as we move forward, as healthcare continues to change and evolve, that we never neglect children's vision, that comprehensive eye examinations for children are accessible. And I really hope, we hope that these policies are then utilized by other groups to actually impact change. It's not enough to pass the policy. We have to take it and use it. And when APHA develops policy and passes policy like this, my sense is it's more impactful than when optometry or ophthalmology says have an eye exam. Is that fair to say? Yes, it is, because you're now talking about the entire public health community recognizing the importance. Sometimes we get challenged that this is all self-serving. Um, without people realizing we're really doing it to try to help our patients. I mean, Scott, you know how difficult it is when you examine a child coming in for their first eye exam at age eight or nine and finding out that they had an incredibly large vision issue that was negatively impacting their overall development and learning. And so the idea is to get children into the system as early as possible. And yes, having partners with groups like APHA that really are out for the greater good really strengthens our message. Yeah. I, APHA also has state affiliates like the AOA does, and um, I would recommend that our colleagues look into their state public health associations, join as a member of some sort, uh, and participate in some of the activity and some of the financial support of the activities they're doing. They're here to support eye care, and it's, you know, part of public health, and I think that's the least we could do to support what they're doing more broadly. I agree. I would encourage all of our optometrists, of course, to be members of AOA. That's critically important. There's not a single OD that should not be a member, but to also join APHA by just going to APHA.org. And it's very easy to join. It's not expensive. You get a choice of two sections to choose. Please choose vision care section as one of your two sections. Um, and I chose maternal and child health as the other one because of my interest in children. Uh, but yes, I think it's very, very important to work on both the uh, national and on the state level.
That's great. Well, let's go back to the AOA. Um, you've been involved in so much there, and you gave us a good sense of what it was like to go through leadership, both state and nationally. Um, but to try to make sure we fit it all in, I thought I might give you what I'll call the two-minute challenge. So in 120 seconds, let's hit on a variety of matters that you care about deeply about. Let's start with AOA PAC, which is the Political Action Committee part of AOA. There's your pin. Let's talk about AOA PAC. So as, the, as John Himes says, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. It's really If we don't stand up for ourselves and get our message out to our legislators, no one else will do it. If we're not for ourselves, no one else will be for us. So talk about return on investment. I'm proudly a member of the AOA PAC board. I'm proudly a donor at the visionary level, which is where we give 2000 or more per year. This pin with the little faux diamonds here indicates I've done that for more than 10 years. Last year alone, thanks to AOA, AOA's efforts, our colleagues got $2.4 billion, $2.4 billion through the PPP loans, through the provider relief funds, and other assistance through the pandemic. That was a direct result of AOA championing to include doctors of optometry in all of those benefits. And it's because of the access that we had by donating to AOA PAC that we were able to get that message across. So it's really easy to give to AOA PAC. If you're an AOA member, just text the word EYES, E-Y-E-S, to 41444, that's E-Y-E-S, to 41444, and you can donate to PAC. It makes it really easy to give. You can do it as a one-time. Um, even giving at this high level, I give it on a monthly basis, and it comes out to 166.67 a month. It's not a lot. I, I tell you, I got back my investment in my PPP loans this year. And as we move forward, as healthcare is changing radically, we need to be at the table. Optometry is small, but we're mighty. We wear the white hat. We carry um, the, the, the correct messaging, but we need to have access and we need your help um, because we have to put our money where it is. A lot of us who are more mature, as I will say, in, the, in uh, our professions have been giving and donating generously. We now need, we've been paying it forward, as I mentioned earlier, to help for generations to come. We need all optometrists, including students, to give it to their, the best of their ability. And, and I can't help myself but interject because I'm not an official AOA spokesperson, but I've spent some time in that kind of capacity. And I always thought of AOA, you know, of optometrists as either AOA members that are dues paying or AOA members that are not dues paying. We're all getting the benefit of AOA activity. Uh, a non-member practice got the benefit of AOA's representation on Capitol Hill. And there's so many things that have to be done to represent and advocate for the profession. So uh, I just want to echo your point by saying, even if you're one of those folks that's strongly and proudly committed to Academy or any of these other organizations that you feel are important. In the end, it's AOA that is our largest voice uh, nationally. So uh, thank you for sharing that. Now let's talk about another thing that's relatively new, AOA Leadership Development Committee. Yeah, so in 2018, the very uh, forward-thinking AOA Board of Trustees created a Leadership Development Committee, which I had the pleasure of chairing since then. And our committee came together to create the AOA Leadership Institute, which was launched this year in 2021, the purpose of which was to develop a diverse group of future leaders, to empower them to be able to step forward. And we've uh, selected 130 diverse young ODs, five to 10 years out of school, who come from every state in the union, represent all different ethnicities and races, all different genders, and have put them in a year-long program to help foster them as leaders. Really, really exciting. Looking forward to our in-person 
a program that's going to be happening at Optometry's meeting. I encourage everyone to not only be AOA members at aoa.org forward slash join, but also to join us at Optometry's meeting where we can actually see each other, which is going to be so exciting. And we're bringing in our uh, young leaders here to the program where they're going to be uh, trained in public speaking. They have four different modules that they're completing. And we're actually broke that group down into four cohort groups, sort of like our lab section, so they can get to know each other. And my hope is that not only are they going to learn new skills this year, not only are they going to feel empowered because they've been selected, they were nominated by their state associations, they're also some of them are faculty members nominated by their schools, they're going to get to know each other and they're going to give each other the support that they need. So as they move forward through leadership positions on both the state and the national level, just as I had friends that helped propel me forward and help, help me in my ascent, I hope that they're going to help each other in that very same way. And this was started actually by the AOA board three years ago, the vision of needing a more diverse leadership of making leadership more accessible, of helping people see the path. And because when we're all together, we are truly better together. Tell us a little bit about AOA Plus. So when I was president, 2016-2017, uh, we launched, launched a new program, AOA Plus, that was designed to take students and new grads who were zero to five years out of school and get them engaged and involved. And in fact, that first year, we were in uh, Washington, D.C. in 2017 for Optometry's meeting. We had a huge rally right on Capitol Hill, uh, and we had programs that we were engaging these young ODs to get them involved, get them involved in advocacy. We had small roundtable discussions where they got to meet uh, other leaders. And the AOA Leadership Institute is sort of an outgrowth of that. So we're taking, you know, students and people zero to five years out of school. Now we're going to work on them five to 10 years out of school because these are all very uh, sensitive times in a an OD's professional career where you're malleable, where you're new, where, you know, when they call it graduation, it's commencement because you're beginning your career. And we want to get them engaged and involved and cultivate them at that point. So it's really part of my whole outgrowth of my interest, as we talked about earlier, about mentoring people all the way through the process from when they're applying to optometry school in optometry school and now coming out because we do need everyone to give back to the profession at their highest level that they can because we need that in order to be able to protect our access to our patients, to expand our scope, to be able to help our patients because really what we're doing is we're advocating not for ourselves, we're really advocating for our patients. And tell us about your perspective on the optometry cares program called Infancy. So, Scott, as you know, uh, I love Infancy. One of the things I'm most proud of was working with you. You were our chair of our Infancy committee as we created, we talked about public health earlier, they, a national public health program to provide no-cost vision care for every baby in this country, uh, in six to 12 months of age. And as we created this program, it was all based on the volunteer efforts of AOA volunteers and the great late Admiral Sullins who had the vision with Operation Bright Start before that. We kept saying as we were, we were working so hard and spending so much time trying to create this program, we kept saying that if we could save one child's life, it would all be worthwhile. And of course, you know, I don't have to tell you, Scott, how many children's lives we saved with the famous Gracie Zellers, uh, who was the child's mom, watched you on the Today Show launching the program with former President Jimmy Carter. And that mom heard your message. And when her child was six months of age, she called up and she accessed one of our doctors through the infancy program. And it was the first 
infancy exam, I think, that our colleague uh, performed. And he literally saved Gracie's life by finding a retinoblastoma. And I think there's been at least 19, 20, 30 kids whose retinoblastomas were found because of infancy. And that whole program was incredibly powerful. We're still providing those services in our practice. I Every time a patient comes into my office and they tell me they're even getting married, I tell them I'm not pushing you. I don't know if you're going to have kids, but when you have kids, I want you to know that our gift to you is going to be that very first comprehensive eye exam as part of the infancy program. It's all about getting children started on a lifetime of good vision and being able to positively impact vision development as early as possible. And that was a great experience, as you know. I mean, we got to be friends, you and I, our whole group that worked so hard on this. Um, really dedicated together. And with the help of Johnson & Johnson Vision Care, um, they really helped us understand how to launch the program, how to get it started. We went down to their institute um, and we really moved it forward together as a group. Yeah, and one last thing about AOA before we move on. You are a profoundly capable spokesperson and your pride exudes. Um, tell us a little bit what it's like to speak on behalf of the doctors that you know are back in their clinics doing that hard work of examining patients in a dark room every day. Um, what kind of pleasure do you drive out of that? What kind of um, feelings does it give you in terms of responsibility? I truly consider it to be a blessing and a privilege to be able to speak on behalf of the profession. You know, my first time that I got to do it live nationally was right before 9-11. It was actually a few days before 9-11. The then AOA president was not going to be able to be in New York and they needed someone for the CBS early show, early morning show, whatever it was called at the time. And I got to talk about children's vision. And, you know, it's not hard to talk publicly when you believe in what you're speaking about and you want to get your message across. I think one of the gifts that all of us have is we're really good communicators. We're used to talking to our patients. We're used to telling the story. We're used to explaining things to people. And so I got involved early on. I had a few different spokespersons roles, then that big, my big chance uh, on national TV. Um, and then I just love it. Um, and as I said in my family, we all have this competition about who gets to do more of it. But it, you you get better at it. AOA gave us media training as part of being on the AOA Board of Trustees, and you learn how to do it. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. Uh, and every time you have an opportunity as a, as a doctor of optometry to tell the story, by all means, take advantage of it. One of my one of my tricks, by the way, um, which I want to share, is when my staff knows that when the media calls. Um, to interrupt me because sometimes they're going to, they want to pick the first person. Um, and, you know, if they don't get you to answer right away, they may move on to somebody else. And actually, that's actually what happened with one of our major national uh, live pieces. When the producer was interviewing me, um, that same one I was telling you about in 2001, I didn't realize they were also interviewing ophthalmologists at the same point. But she liked how mm -hmm. I spoke. I spoke really loud. I was with my family on vacation. We pulled into a parking lot. I threw my family out of the car. I shut the windows. It was boiling hot, and I and I did the pre-interview right then and there. Um, but you know, one of the things you learn is that the more you do it, the better you get at it. Um, I have my staff inter interrupt me. Then I ask the reporter, what is this about? And then I tell them, sure, I'll be happy to help you. Can we do this in an hour or two hours? Because I'm with a patient. Mm -hmm. So now I have booked the actual time. But what I'm really mm -hmm. doing is I'm getting the hour, two hours to think about what my messaging is. And then I call AOA because yeah. they'll always help you. And I call our, our AOA communications team. 
um, right away. I send them a text or email and I say, okay, this is the topic. Get me the talking points. So anyway, we'll send you your talking points that you need. And one of the things you learn is that you always at most want to have three points. You want to repeat them three times. It's the three by three rule. And no matter what they ask me, I am going to say doctor of optometry. In fact, I have a friend every time he sees me, he goes, here she comes, the doctor of optometry. I'm always going to say AOA.org because I want to be able to drive people to the website. And I'm never really at all ever promoting myself or my practice. It's always about promoting the profession and AOA. And you know, the more you give back, the more the world <laughs> returns to you. So that's how I, I feel. I just I keep giving and somehow, thank God, God has been good to me and to my family and to my practice. And I hope, as I said before, to be able to continue giving back for many years to come. That's funny that you mentioned giving an interview or a pre-interview in that case in a car. I did the exact same thing one time. I had to go out in the garage, in the car, be quiet. Um, I needed a soundproof booth at the time, and uh, that worked pretty well. Um, one last question. What advice would you give to an optometrist who's preparing to advance her clinical practice in the next few years in a substantial way? What is that big thing that that doctor should be thinking about for the next two or three years? So it's a it's a moving target all the time. And so as, a, as an optometrist, you need to be the best you can be. You need to always be learning. And one of the best things to advance your practice and your profession is by being becoming an engaged member in AOA, in your local society, in your state association. Because by going to those meetings and tapping in, you will see what's coming next. You will understand what's out there, what the challenges are. I mean, years ago when I was first in practice and managed care was coming into the arena, the whole idea of do we engage, don't we engage, do we participate, how do we participate, it all became clear to me by attending all of these meetings. I go to every meeting with a question, and I basically interview several of my colleagues and get their feedback, and I sit there the whole weekend listening, okay, he said A, and he said B, and he said C, and he said D, and I would ruminate, and by the end of the weekend, I would come out with my own plan that was a mixture, an amalgam, my own method, um, and so I think that's what's really important. We have a lot of challenges up ahead. I think the biggest challenge that we're looking at is the potential erosion of the doctor-patient relationship, and we need to do everything in our power to strengthen that bond, and whether you're looking at telemedicine, whether you're looking at managed care, whether you're looking at how you're going to render care, whether you're looking at scope of practice, whether you're looking at equipment, you need to look at it through that lens. What can I do that's best for that patient? Because if you do what's right for the patient, they will do what's right for your practice. You always need to put the patient first and you'll always sleep well at night and you'll be very successful. Yeah, that's the target that never moves is doing right for the patient. So last thing is a point of personal privilege. You and I met, as you said, many years ago, working together at AOA as collaborative volunteers for infancy. And I would never try to compare my volunteer careers to yours, but it was a great opportunity. And, and as part of that, I got to experience something that I call the Andrea Thaw effect. It was this opportunity to see you and engage with you in a meaningful way as a person. And as we got to know each other, you all in the committee got to know my mom's battle with ovarian cancer. And everybody was so supportive of me and her as we'd go through things. And then we brought her to an AOA meeting and everyone got to meet her and uh, you all had a chance to give an impact to her. And then one day after that, you say to us, hey, uh, I traveled to Israel. Uh, I was at Jerusalem at the Wailing Wall and I prayed for your mother. And my mom was bowled over with gratitude for this human and spiritual decency. And 
not only do I want to thank you for that publicly, but I want to ask you what you think about that, what you remember about that, because to me, that's at the core what's beautiful about this thing you say, getting involved with each other because something comes of it. That's my story of what comes of being, you know, your friend. I mean, we are really a family. It's really incredible. Um, And it's an incredible bond. And it's a bond. I mean, the profession is a family, but the AOA family is at a different level. And when you work with someone side by side, they are truly your family. And and Scott, your family became our family. And at that time, I remember I went to the wall. Your mom was really ill at that point. And things were really bad. and I don't know, when I pray at the wall for other people, miracles happen. And I remember something really positive happened right after that. There was, she went for a test and she did yep. really well on that particular test. Things had, you know, for a while had reversed. Um, yeah. And you and she were kind of blown away. Uh, I, I wish I could have kept going every week and kept <laughs> her going. Um, but but it's, it's an incredible bond. Um, I know that any of our colleagues, they need anything. I'm there for them, and I know they're there for me, and they're there for my family and my children, and um, and it's it's something that I could never replace. I try to explain to people that I have met people and gotten to be close with people who, on paper, might have seemed incredibly different than I am, uh, come from other regions, maybe different political parties, different religions, um, different philosophies, and yet we found the commonality that we all had together, that we're all good people that we all want to make the world a better place, that we all want to help our patients. And I've learned so much. It's deepened me as a person by getting to know you and all of our colleagues um, through AOA. And it's really special. And um, every time I go to the wall, I do pray for our colleagues who are sick or their family members. Um, and, And great stuff happens. Unfortunately, I haven't gone this year because of the pandemic, but I'm hoping to go back in December. Um, but but we are family. We are AOA family. We are team AOA, and those bonds are unbreakable. Dr. Andrew Thaw, thank you. It's been a distinct pleasure to hear your stories. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you so much for all that you're doing, getting out this positive positive message, which we need at all times. You know, all of your interviews have been incredibly inspiring and positive. I love listening to them. Um, I think it's the positive energy that our world needs at this very at this very time. So thank you for all you do, and thank you for this opportunity. You're welcome, and, and so grateful that you spent your time with us. And to the audience, thank you also for attending. And until my next Sandbox story, be great at all you do.